Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Today, author Neil Shinvey continues shedding light on critical theory and examining its impact on our culture and the church. Our first event of the new year is exactly one month away, February 16th and 17th in the Tampa Bay, Florida area. Is America in Bible Prophecy? Find out from Donald Perkins. The latest details on the march toward a one-world system will be revealed. Biblical mysteries will be uncovered. And you'll learn how to have true spiritual victory in the invisible war on the saints. Biblical artifacts from Israel will be on display with an archaeologist ready to answer your questions. Tickets for this special event are free, but seating is limited. Don't be left behind. Register today. Friday and Saturday, February 16th and 17th at Hicks Road Baptist Church. Call 1-800-652-1144 for more information or visit the events page at swrc.com. Here's staff evangelist Josh Davis and author Neil Shinvey continuing their examination of the history and current day impact of critical theory. We're going to continue this important discussion that we've been having with Dr. Neil Shinvey on the book Critical Dilemma. This book is over 500 pages and is hardback bound and is a wonderful resource. If you missed yesterday's program, I strongly encourage you, please go back and listen to that, whether that be through our website, podcast platforms, etc., etc., because you want to listen to the first part so you'll understand where we're going today as we continue this important discussion. And as we said yesterday, in the last several years, critical theories have invaded Government, education, churches, and even homes, the confusion, division, new semantics, and outright cultural upheaval are baffling to those who don't know what's behind these worldviews. According to the authors Neil Shinvey and Pat Sawyer, every Christian, whether liberal or conservative, is being tugged by the swift ideological current of their surroundings. We may not even notice we are adrift. They go on to warn, don't allow yourself to get slowly drug into apostasy and deconstruction. Dr. Shinvi, we're so glad to have you back on our Watchmen on the Wall radio program today. Good to be back. And Dr. Shinvi has a A.B. in chemistry from Princeton and a Ph.D. in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. And I say that with a grin on my face because chemistry was one of those areas that I failed significantly, <laughs> especially when it got into organic chemistry as I was working on an undergrad in the biology department of the school. But I, I digress into my own failures there. But uh, I certainly could learn a lot of chemistry from you, I'm sure. Now, the Supreme Court recently ruled on affirmative action when it comes to higher education and those kinds of things. Does that ruling on affirmative action signal a sensible change in race-conscious student admissions? I hope so. That said, a number of schools immediately responded to the decision by, by saying they're going to flout the decision. They're going to ignore it and find ways around it. I think Harvard was prominent in doing that. And, you know, Harvard was really the epicenter of critical race theory in the 80s and 90s where it originated. And I think that a lot of these ideas are so deeply entrenched in our culture and academia today through DEI programs, through anti-racist programs, that it's It'll, be, it'll take a lot more than just one Supreme Court decision to get rid of it. And it'll take a lot of persuasion, too, 
convincing people that actually there are better ways to think about things like race, class, and gender, and there are better approaches that actually yield racial unity and justice in our society than the ones that you're offering. And this is a very important discussion that we're having, friends, talking about this book, Critical Dilemma. So why can't one apply critical race theory just to race? What else is involved with critical race theory? That's a great question. A lot of Christians hear these ideas and they say, well, I don't think it's all bad. Can't we eat the meat and spit out the bones, right? Nothing's perfect. There's always error mingled with truth. And so why can't we just take the true parts of critical race theory and and spit out the bad parts? Well, one thing I'd say is oftentimes you don't really ever specify what the good parts are supposedly. They'll just say that and then you'll, well, what do you mean by the good parts? They'll say, I don't know. That's a problem. So in our book, we have a whole chapter devoted to critical race theory where we just explain its core tenets. Critical race theory say, here are the defining elements of our theory that make it what it is. And if you go through them one at a time, you'll realize these are bad. This is mm. fundamentally a wrong way to think about race, justice, the law, morality, and all kinds of things. One example of its conflicts, the basic conflicts between critical race theory and Christianity, is the idea of intersectionality. So one of the core tenets of critical race theory since its inception was the idea that race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, and a host of other factors are all forms of oppression that must all be destroyed simultaneously. Hmm. So in the anthology Words That Wound, published in 1993 by four of the co-founders of critical race theory, including Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality and who coined the term critical race theory in that book, Mm -hmm. four years after the movement began, these co-founders say that one of the defining elements of critical race theory is that it tackles, it's part of a larger project to get rid of all forms of social oppression, including racism, sexism, and heterosexism through, in their words, quote, massive social transformation. Now, according to these founders of the theory, this is one of the defining elements of the theory. It'd be like saying, you know, we can accept Islam and eat the meat and spit out the bones. But if a Muslim says, well, one of the the core elements of Islam is that we deny that Jesus was the Son of God. We deny that. That is part and parcel of what Islam believes. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't really accept Islam then. It's just not compatible with Christianity. Well, in the same way, if you hold to a biblical sexual ethic, you must reject at least one of these core elements of CRT. And there are many others you could talk about. But I find that when people are simply exposed to the actual writings of critical race theorists, they'll quickly realize this is not compatible with the Bible. I'll give one more example, too. This is actually worth, worth doing. One of the core principles of critical race theory is that law is a mechanism of oppression. In other words, it's not just that some bad laws are unjust and some bad laws are there to promote the power of, say, the ruling class, like in this case, whites. And that certainly can be true, right? A hundred years ago, we had laws that were explicitly designed to promote the power of whites and mm. to marginalize blacks. So that's possible. But critical race theorists don't merely say it's possible. They're saying that's what law is. Mm. So we have quotes to the effect that, in their view, law just is a human construct. It's not grounded in any transcendent universal moral standard. They deny that. 
And right off the bat, we have to say, no, that's not true. God is a lawgiver. God gave human beings a moral code that we should work to make into, at some degree, into human laws. The idea that murder is illegal is a good, it's a good law, and it's grounded in God's command, thou shalt not murder. Mm-hmm. But critical race theory denies that. And I don't see how, as a Christian, you can claim that all human laws are just human social constructs. Ironically, Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement appealed to traditional Christian theorists about law. He argued, along with Augustine and Aquinas, that human law, just human laws, are laws that are rooted in God's eternal law. That is the traditional Christian view of law, and critical race theory just denies that outright. So it's another example of you just can't embrace that idea and be a Christian. Mm. You just reject a whole law is nothing more than a power play. That's not true. Yes. And it goes back to the issue of worldview and uh, what your worldview really is. For the Christian worldview, we understand that the Ten Commandments, for instance, flow out of God's character. He wasn't just up in heaven flipping a coin one day and deciding, okay, thou shalt kill, thou shalt not kill, let's see which one it'll be. No, it flows out of his very nature, his very being, and that's why he set forth the guidelines, the rules, the commandments that he set forth for us to follow after. And that's an important distinction as we lead into the next section and the next question which has to do about queer theory. Can you simply define what is queer theory, as you have a whole chapter on this in your book? Queer theory is another critical social theory, like critical theory. It's sort of a cousin of critical race theory. But queer theory deals with gender and sexuality. So the main purpose of queer theory is to undermine this, these ideas of a fixed category for gender and sexuality. So traditionally, you know, there are two sort of buckets into which humanity fell. There's men and women, and men are attracted to and marry women, and women are attracted to and marry men, and they have kids, and that's the way God designed the world. This is a Christian, traditional Christian view. It's a traditional human view throughout history, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Well, queer theory denies that. Queer theory views gender as a social construct, something that human beings invented pretty much arbitrarily. And therefore, something that we don't have to respect, we should, we should actually work to liberate people that fall outside of those traditional gender categories. So people that feel like they're uh, men trapped in women's bodies or vice versa, people that feel like they're gender fluid, that they're a third gender, they're a, just a fifth gender, there are a hundred genders. Queer theory wants to affirm that self-identity, that you can be whatever gender you want, you can make up a new one if you want to. Then similarly, sexually that all of these standards of what is right and wrong sexually are really out the window. It gets pretty bad. So one of the big debates within queer theory is whether or not intergenerational sex is ethical or can be ethical. Hmm. Now, by intergenerational sex, they mean pedophilia. So can adults have sex with children? Now, don't take my word for that. We have numerous sources in our book quoted as saying, this is an, an area of open discussion within queer theory. Some think, oh, yeah, pedophilia is bad, but others think it's another human construct. The binary between adult and child is also oppressive. We should erase that binary and let children have what they call agency and sexual autonomy, mm. the right to choose their own sexual partners if they want it, wow. which is pretty terrifying. Yes. But that's not us making that up. That's in the literature. Once again, we're going back to worldview and 
when you deny the existence of God, when you deny the authority of God, and, and man is the captain of his own ship and the master of his own fate, then who's to say what's right and wrong? If you don't have a standard outside of yourself, outside of humanity, then whatever we want to do, we do. And it goes right to Romans 1 and 2 in Scripture. Friends, we're visiting with author Dr. Neil Shenvey about the book Critical Dilemma. This is over 500 pages. As you can tell, it is a resource that you will go back to over and over and over again. Volumes of research that took years to put together as melded into this fascinating book. It has got a veritable who's who of people who are endorsing it in the beginning of the book, and it's a wonderful resource that will help the church and will guide us to understand what is underneath and behind these kinds of ideas that we see permeating our culture and leading people down this road towards wokeism, as we hear so much about. You can pick up a copy of this book, Critical Dilemma, by calling us at 1-800-652-1144, 1-800-652-1144, or by visiting us online at swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Dr. Shenvey, in part two of the book, you offer a Christian critique of critical theory. What are some of the core points that you make in part two of the book? It's hard to know where to begin, right? These theories are so antithetical to a biblical worldview. Uh, like I said, it is a different worldview, and so you can't really have competing worldviews you know, in your head. They're gonna, mm-hmm. One's going to win. And we see that. We see that as people in ideas, they drift farther and farther from Christian orthodoxy, and that's, that's not a, a bug. It's a feature of these theories. That, as Pat likes to say, they try to colonize your mind. They, mm. they, they take more and more and more space in your emotions, in your, the way you think about reality. Another one of the other really bad parts about these theories is how they approach the truth. So it's called epistemology. How do you know what's true? Mm -hmm. So these critical social theories place a high premium on lived experience, meaning your personal subjective experiences give you insight into what's actually true. And particularly if you're a member of an oppressed group, then your lived experiences are pretty much inviolable. You can say, if, you know, as a woman, I believe X, or as a Hispanic lesbian, I believe Y. And woe betide the white male who says, well, that's not actually true, though. I have No, 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 you can't do that, because mm. if you have an oppressor status, if you're a straight white male, if you're a Christian, then telling them, well, that your lived experience does not match the available evidence is a way for you to exert your power and control and to oppress them. So instead, straight white men have to kind of just shut up and listen mm. and accept what they're being told by people with more intersectionality oppression points. Well, that's a terrible way to approach the truth, because the Bible says our hearts are wicked, and, mm. and, and who can fathom the depths of our, our wickedness? We have to always examine our hearts and compare them to what the Bible says, to what objective evidence says. That goes not just for women or people of color, but for men, too, everybody, everybody has asked to don't get the pass to pass off their lived experiences as the truth. Mm-hmm. We all have to be reminded that we're accountable to God and to the reality God created, and then test ourselves to make sure we're not just promoting our personal preferences and exalting them to the level of objective truth. Mm. So this is dangerous, because if you start saying that doctrine can be determined by your feelings, basically, you're in a world of trouble. Yes, that's so true. And it gets into the whole, as you said, subjectivity of knowledge, subjectivity 
of morality, and I can determine what is right, I can determine what's wrong, it can fluctuate, it can change with however I feel, any way that I want to, any time I want to. In part three of the book, you list eight warnings or some deeply flawed slogans. Some of these phrases are we hear very often in our culture today. What are some of these kinds of slogans, and why do you think that they're deeply flawed? One of them, I mean, they all sound sort of right in the moment because they're so common. These, these sentiments reflect our common zeitgeist. But if you pull them apart, you see this is not actually true or good. So uh, one would be something like sin is oppression. You kind of hear that a lot, sin is oppression. Well, that's not exactly right. Oppression, real oppression, biblical oppression is sin. Of course it is. You mm-hmm. shouldn't cruelly, unjustly abuse someone. That's a, that's a sin. But not all sin is oppression. So, for example, idolatry, worshiping a rock, that's a sin. It's a grievous sin, but it's not oppressing anybody, right? It's, it's blaspheming God's name. Mm-hmm. Lying. You, don't, you can lie to someone, and, and that doesn't, it doesn't oppress them. It just, it's just a falsehood. But God says, don't speak falsehood. Mm-hmm. So there are all kinds of sins that are not, don't map onto this critical theories category of oppression horizontally. And primarily, the, the bigger problem is this. Sin is primarily against God, not against other people. Of course, yes. other people can be harmed by our sin, and it is sin to harm other people. But primarily against God, we've sinned, and forgiveness, whereas critical theory reverses that and makes the primary sin horizontal, kind of ignores the vertical component. So we want to affirm as Christians that actually against you, God, you alone have I sinned, and no one is evil in your sight. That's mm-hmm. how it's where our first thoughts have to go when we've sinned. And again, that slogan, sin is oppression, is very, is very misleading. Another one, there are plenty more, but uh, whiteness is wickedness. Whiteness is wickedness. The idea that whiteness is somehow, and then people will redefine whiteness to mean something like white supremacy. And they'll say whiteness is the system by which whites oppress people of color. And I would say there's numerous problems there. Um, one would just obviously be no one's guilty for their ancestors' sin. You don't get stained by whiteness as a white person, and you don't get passed down sin from generation to generation. Hmm. And we give a whole chapter on that, that problem, the idea of collective guilt and why it's not biblical. We have a whole chapter on that. Hmm. Uh, also the idea that you know, just by being white in our society, you're benefiting from racism. And the answer is no, you're not. You're not stained by racism just because you exist as a white person in this culture. There are theological problems with that. I mean, Jesus himself was a man in a patriarchal culture. Was he stained by the sin of patriarchy? And the answer is, no, that's actually blasphemous. He committed no sin. He was not tainted by sin. He was not complicit in sin. We're not guilty of things we didn't do. We all commit plenty of sin. There's no shortage of that, but it's not, we're not inheriting the sin of some random person with our skin color from a hundred years ago. And that mentality that we can divide the church into oppressors and oppressed because of their inherent attributes like skin color or gender. This is a terrible way to view the church. The church is the body of Christ. We're family. Yes. I cannot walk into a church on Sunday and, and label people, oh, here's, here's an oppressor Christian, here's an oppressed Christian, here's an oppressor. No, this is my brother and sister. Mm. This is not someone that I, am at, at, that I need to be reconciled to. We have been reconciled once and for all by Jesus. End of story. And that has to be at the heart of our view of church. Amen. And there's the go- two examples, but there, there are many. Yes, absolutely. And the gospel does change everything. And we know that uh, even now we're understanding that the book does move to some solutions and the gospel solution that's offered. 
And you suggest that we shouldn't be culture warriors, but ambassadors. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean that we should try to pull people back from these ideas and offer them something better. You can you can go out and just try to crush these bad ideas. And I'm not against that. By the way, these are bad ideas. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more effective often to offer people something solid. The Bible gives us a way to truly achieve love and unity and harmony. And it's through the gospel that yes. Jesus solved our main problem, which was sin, not oppression. It's sin against the holy God. He solved that once and for all, and now he calls us into his family. And that will heal so many of these wounds. That will create a way for us to seek true justice. We have something that no one else can offer. Society's desperate for, which is true healing, true community, true unity. The church can do that for people. And so we have many practical things that you can do. We urge people to engage in dialogue, talk to your friends, talk to your family, ask good questions, read books. Mm-hmm. We urge people to read books on sides of the issue. Don't just read your side, read the other side too, and then have an actual discussion with people around you. We have many practical tips, but we really want to not just tear down these cultural idols. We want to build the church up so it can be a place where people see God's kingdom and God's forgiveness and God's grace on display. Very well said, and we thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Shinvi. Thank you so much for inviting me. Today, we are featuring the book, Critical Dilemma. In Critical Dilemma, authors Neil Shinvi and Pat Sawyer illuminate the origins and influences of contemporary critical theory, considering it in the light of clear reason and biblical orthodoxy. While acknowledging that it can provide some legitimate insights regarding race, class, and gender, Critical Dilemma exposes the false assumptions at the heart of critical theory, arguing that it poses a serious threat to both the church and society at large. Drawing on exhaustive research and careful analysis, Shinvi and Sawyer condemn racism, urge Christians to seek justice, and offer a path forward for racial healing and unity while also opposing critical theory's manifold errors. Order your copy of Critical Dilemma today. Simply call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order Critical Dilemma at our website, swrc.com. It's important to confidently know how to share our faith with friends and family. Serving in his court is a segment that shares insight on how to effectively and lovingly share your faith with family and friends. Here's author and speaker, Larry Stamm. Shalom, friends. Larry Stamm here. So glad you're joining us as we continue this teaching series, Serving in His Court, Biblical Principles for Personal Evangelism from the Heart of a Coach. In our last lesson, we finished talking about Satan and his minions and their opposition to our witness for Jesus. We talked about the victory we have in Jesus Christ because that tomb is empty. In this lesson, we're going to begin talking about the evangelistic toolbox. What do I mean by the evangelistic toolbox? Well, I mean specifically, what spiritual tools has God given to us to help us do the work of evangelism? First of all, we've talked about the fact that we have the victory in Christ and we're living not on a playground but a battleground. But we need to understand first and foremost that the weapons of our spiritual war 
are not fleshly, they're not carnal, but they're actually mighty in God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5 is where I want to start our time in this lesson. The apostle wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We need to understand that we have divine resources that God has given us so that we can utilize and access them in our evangelistic efforts as we seek to share the gospel with others. First of all, I want you to note that the divine resources God has given us to utilize and access in our witness are, number one, God's Word, number two, the gospel message, number three, the Holy Spirit, and number four, prayer. So God has given us his word, the gospel, the spirit, and prayer as tools in our evangelistic toolbox. And I want us to remember again that we are not sufficient of ourselves to do the work of evangelism, but rather our sufficiency comes from God, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And I want to remind you that one of the reasons that you and I are sufficient for all things he's called us to, including the work of personal evangelism, is that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. That's 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. So first of all, we understand the tools God has given us. We understand that we are sufficient to do all God has called us to do, including doing the work of evangelism. Friends, in this parable of the sower, there are two constants and a variable. The two constants are the sower and the seed. The sower is anyone who sows the seed, specifically Jesus explains, is the word of God. So you and I, as witnesses for Jesus Christ, we are sowers. We sow the seed, namely the word of God, in this parable. And notice the parable will reveal the variable, the variable, namely the soil. When the seed lands on hard or rocky soil, it doesn't stay. It doesn't bear fruit. But when the seed lands on good soil, it bears much fruit. Friends, the soil is the condition of the human heart. This is the variable. You and I are called to be faithful to sow gospel seed. One sows, one waters, but what? God gives the increase. So we don't know the condition of a human heart when we sow gospel seed, but we can bet, we can be sure that God will give the increase according to his will. Remember, use the word of God in your witness, sow gospel seed through the word, and allow the Lord to multiply it. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. We're going to continue next time talking about using the word of God in our witness. And until next time, the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Shalom. In the book, Critical Dilemma, authors Neil Shinvey and Pat Sawyer illuminate the origins and influences of contemporary critical theory, considering it in the light of clear reason and biblical orthodoxy. Order your copy of Critical Dilemma today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order on our website 
swrc.com. Tomorrow, we look at how to be financially prepared in the midst of worldwide chaos. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Please visit our website, swrc.com.